Welcome to the ACC Podcast. We're honored that you took some time out of your day to listen to our weekly message. We know that everyone is currently operating in a new normal as we are all experiencing some life-altering challenges during this difficult time in our world. We hope that these messages offer some reassurance and it reminds you that our hope does not lie in man, but in God and his plan for all of us. If you have any questions about ACC, like our core beliefs, where we are located, or other key information, check out our website, anacorduschristian.church. That's anacorduschristian.church. You can contact us directly through our website or by phone or email. We look forward to hearing from you. As for now, take some time to sit down, get comfortable, and enjoy the message. So we are in a new series right now going through the book of Daniel, and we're calling this series Planted in Foreign Soil. Planted in Foreign Soil. Mark started us, uh, started us off last week with an overview highlighting the showdown that's taking place in this series between God and the gods of Babylon, but ultimately the gods of our own hearts too. And that's kind of an overriding theme. There's going to be a series of tests and showdowns through Daniel, as well as a whole bunch of other stuff. I want to jump right in and read our passage. And, and we're going to read Daniel chapter 1, but we're only going to, we're going to take a couple Sundays to preach on it, I think. But we're, we're definitely going to read the whole chapter, and I hope you can bear with me for that. It's a bit long, but it's worth it because it's a self-contained story. And it's a good story. It's interesting. So I'm going to read from the English Standard Version. Daniel chapter 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace, and to each and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the the chief of the eunuchs gave them names, Daniel he called Belteshazzar, Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord, the king, who assigned your food and your drink. For why should he see that you were in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. 
Then Daniel said to the steward of the chief of the eunuchs, had, uh, to the steward whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, test your servants for ten days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this, manner, in this matter and tested them for ten days. At the end of ten days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and the wine that they were to drink and gave them vegetables. As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. At the end of the time, when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar, and the king spoke with them, and among all of them none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore they stood before the king, and in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. Uh, this is God's word, so let's pray. Father in heaven, this is an interesting story. And I pray that as, as we open it up a bit more, that it would become clear to us, but not only clear to us in an academic sense or a learning kind of sense, but really in a personal sense, we'd see ourselves in this story and the opportunities and the choices that we face today um, are very similar in some ways and directly affect our future. And God, I just pray that you would convict and speak to us and give us freedom. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Okay, this story, it's a little weird. Okay, it's a little bit strange at first glance, and Daniel is just going to get even more strange as it moves along. But if you're willing to hang with me and stick with it, there is so much here for us today. And that's because, like us today, and this might surprise you, uh, Daniel and his friends find themselves in the midst of an apocalypse. Okay, yes, I just used that word, apocalypse. In fact, much of the book of Daniel falls into a strange category of Jewish literature called apocalyptic. Now, when you hear that word, apocalypse, what comes to mind? What do you think of? What do you think that word means, apocalypse? Maybe you have like some zombie movie in the back of your head. Um, you know, and, and typically, if you look up the word or if you think of the word, usually what people have in mind is something to do with the end of the world. You know, it's this final battle, this great meltdown of all things, and, and it's like the end of the world. Well, the meaning of apocalypse actually has nothing to do with the end of the world, ever. Um, in fact, the use of the word in the Bible never has anything to do with the end of the world. Uh, for, for instance, what it, what it does mean, what it does refer to is an unveiling or a revealing, an uncovering. It's a revelation, okay? It's peeling the layers back and being able to see what's going on below the surface. So for example, Jesus 
says, I thank you, Father, that you have hidden these things from the wise and the learned, but have revealed them. And right there is the Greek word apocalypse, or I can't even say the Greek word for it. It's almost the same word, to little children. So, so that to, be, to have something hidden from you is the opposite of an apocalypse. Okay? I, I thank you, God, that you've hidden these truths from those who are wise and learned, but you've apocalypsed them. You've revealed them to little children. Right, and, and so the word gets kind of conflated and used in a different way. We could have an apocalypse right now, uh, right, right in front of the camera here. I could rip my shirt off, and that would be an apocalypse, okay? I might be getting a little inappropriate here for some, but certainly you'd be going like, I had no idea how white that guy is, right? That would be an apocalypse. That would be a revelation. But even more than that, you would notice something. You'd notice a scar right here. And that scar would tell a story. And you'd want to know more about that story, perhaps. You know, you'd say, hey, Mike looks like he's had open heart surgery, which is true. I have. And that's what apocalypse does. It opens, it peels back layers. It opens up meaning and reveals the story, the real story, underneath. And usually with Daniel and Revelation, God is revealing what's underneath the visible to the actual story underneath through visions and dreams. And that's what we're going to, we're going to see quite a bit of that, though not really in this chapter. Now, there is prophecy in the visions that unfold, and they tend to deal with how God is closing out one age of history and bringing about another. But most of the time, whenever I hear pastors preach about Daniel or Revelation, they're kind of using it as a roadmap to explain the end times and how whatever current crisis or war or pandemic that we're going through fits into that picture in our world's history and how it proves the Bible's real and Jesus is coming soon and so on. Now, I believe that these books are far more useful than that. And we need to be careful that we don't try to conform Scripture into something that it's not intending to say. So you have to just be really cautious with all that kind of stuff. And you have to go deep. You have to go below the surface. You want to know what those books are talking about in their visions and dreams. That being said, they do give us help in understanding how to interpret the times, but maybe not in the ways that we often hear or expect. Today, in our day and age, right now, there are a lot of things being uncovered there are a lot of things being apocalypsed, okay? We are definitely living in, in a technical definition of the word apocalypse right now. You know, my kids are, are all home all the time now. There's no one in school, and so there's revelations about how they're interacting with one another that we might not have seen when some of them were off at school or were off at work or something like that. And so now we're, we're dealing with the relational dynamics in our family. There's marriages right now, some who are getting stronger than they've ever been before and some who are, quite frankly, falling apart. Isolation breeds depression, addiction, dependency, Apparently, there are social imbalances to how this thing is being handled as far as who gets aid and who doesn't, where testing is performed, where it isn't, um, who gets to keep their business open, who doesn't. You know, those are all kind of revealing things about the nature of how we're working as a nation. There's social media, there's the media, there's Facebook wars and polarization, and all of this we're seeing an unveiling. Okay, we're, we're seeing what's being unearthed 
underneath. Okay, and what's underneath isn't necessarily new. And that's the thing. It didn't begin with this crisis. It's simply being uncovered. The stuff we're having to deal with, that we're having to wrestle with in those relational dynamics and what we're finding out is, has always been there. It's just that it takes an apocalypse, an outside event, to pull back the layers and actually expose what's really been there the whole time. And that's what we're dealing with right now. We could distract ourselves or have coping mechanisms before, but that's a lot more, that's a lot more difficult now. We're having to make sense of what we see. That's apocalypse. And that's what's happening in this story. In essence, what looks on the surface like exile, defeat, and the end of the story is actually a new beginning. God is uprooting himself from Israel and Judah, who through their idolatry, worship of pagan gods, innocent bloodshed, enslavement of the vulnerable, and alliances with Egypt and Assyria, have, in the words of Ezekiel, become Egypt. Okay? Ezekiel and Jeremiah were both contemporaries of Daniel, and they actually wrote back and forth, apparently, and, and that's how they perceive Israel at this time. Israel is the new Egypt, whom they escaped from, you know, in the Red Sea and so on. And this first wave of exile is kind of like a new exodus into the wilderness. So what is God doing? What God is doing is reseeding, like seeds, S-E-E-D, his kingdom through these four young men right into the heart of Babylon. And what we will see is that eventually Babylon itself will be converted to the extent that the prophets are going to warn Israel, the remnant living in Israel, if you rebel against Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar, you rebel against Yahweh your God. Of course, the Jews don't listen, and they rebel anyway, and they get stomped, as the story goes. So how do we know that's what God is doing here. And why is it relevant for us today? Well, you have to learn how to understand Jewish apocalyptic literature like Daniel through the lens of Genesis. Genesis is like the decoder key of Daniel. Okay, Genesis 1 through 11. And there's other scriptures too and other passages outside of Genesis, of course. But really, almost for any book of the Bible, if you really want to know how to get your mind around it, you need to learn to understand Genesis 1 through 11 in particular as kind of the decoder key of everything. What I mean, decoder key, you remember like uh, the Christmas story movie when uh, Ralphie is, he loves to listen to Little Orphan Annie, the radio show, and at the end of every show, it's like, okay, it's time for Little Orphan Annie's secret club to get out your decoder key, and, and, uh, and we're going to get the secret message, and he gives this code. Well, Ralphie, uh, saves up enough to order his decoder key, and he gets it in the mail, and he's so excited, and the music is intense, and he's feverishly trying to unravel this code that he's been given, and he writes it all down, and it climaxes, and it's like, be sure to drink your Ovaltine, a crummy commercial. You know, it's this huge letdown and so on. Well, Genesis is like the decoder key for Daniel, and the reason I say that is because we're going to get a little bit deeper here, but 
I believe that if you are a Christ follower and a Christian who wants to make sense of the Bible, you've got to know how to read it. You've got to know how to dig deeper and find the repeated words and the patterns that are being laid out because there are definitely allusions and patterns here that highlight the meaning of the story just a little under the surface. So we're going to dig into that. Every time God sets out to do something new, he replants himself in a way. Usually through one or a few people, and it usually involves a garden of some kind. His people are usually offered dominion of some kind, and there is a test. The test usually involves food of some kind. And as a result of the test, the people will either find themselves bearing the image of God or naked, having their shame exposed, followed by exile and a series of curses or promises upon their offspring or seed. So, for instance, Adam and Eve are planted in a garden, offered dominion over God's creation, including dominion over the beasts of the field and the other animals. And then there's a test. The serpent, a crafty beast of the field, it says, offers them a chance to be more, to be like the gods. Just take the food that he offers. As a result, they find themselves naked, subdued by the beast, exiled from the garden, and there's enmity between the woman's offspring and the serpent's. Things spiral out of control until the earth is characterized by chaos and violence. And God starts all over by washing it clean in a flood of his judgment. And Noah is like a new Adam. He's given dominion over the animals once again in the ark and he lives at peace with them. He's planted on a mountain garden and plants a vineyard there. He overindulges on the fruit of the garden, the wine, and he finds himself naked. But this time it is his son Ham who has transgressed and his offspring are cursed to be at enmity and subdued by the offspring of his brothers. Do you see a pattern here? It happens again with Abraham after the Tower of Babel. It happens again with Israel um, being let, set free from Pharaoh and uh, in, the, in the Exodus, and then Mount Sinai, and the wilderness, and so on, and then the era of the kings. Every time one era seems to crumble and fail, God restarts by reseeding, and that's what he's doing here. But in this instance, God is going to take an existing garden kingdom, and instead of starting new, he's going to usurp it, and that's the showdown, as Mark put it last week. So first, we get a hint. It says it's the Lord who gave the king of Judah over to the king of Babylon. Is this Nebuchadnezzar's doing, or is this God's doing all along? And that's the question that's being set up here. Is this a horrible exile, or is it the beginning of something new? Second, you're supposed to pick, on a few, pick up on a few words. They use specifically the land of Shinar, Shinar. That would hearken you right back to Genesis chapter 11, the Tower of Babel story. This is a land that's characterized by, let us build a city and a tower with its top in the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves. It is mankind attempting to create Eden without God in the picture. At this time, uh, in the time of Daniel, Babylon is at its height of its power. It's 
It's a garden city. Maybe you've heard of the Hanging Gardens of Babylon. Okay, that was this time period. It was in its prime. It goes on to say, another key word that it says is that they moved the vessels of the house of God to the house of the treasury of the king's God. Now that should remind the reader of the book of Judges when the Philistines captured the Ark of the Covenant, the key vessel of the house of God, and put it in their own temple of the god Dagon. And of course, God wreaked havoc on their idol, their god Dagon, and ultimately on the people themselves, and they ended up returning the Ark of the Covenant back to the Israelites. And I believe that this is inserted in this story right here to give us a little bit of a parallel. This is what's going on under the surface with these people, these four youths in particular. These are like the vessels of God being taken into the house of the gods of the foreign empire and through them, God is going to just turn everything upside down. That's, that's the picture. So that sets you up. Next, you have the indoctrination program, the university program, right? He takes the people of influence. He seeks to swallow them up into Babylonian culture and through them increase Babylon's dominion. That's a great strategy, right? You may not have enough people to subdue the world, but if you can multiply yourself and indoctrinate your most influential people from every culture, that's a pretty good idea, right? And, but here's what's interesting. When it says that the king took the royalty or the family of the royal family, it specifically uses the Hebrew term, the seeds of the kingdom, to talk about the youths that the king of Babylon took into Babylon and the nobility, too. The seeds of the kingdom. So notice the description. These youths are without blemish, for one. And that's another code word for qualified to stand and serve as a priest of the king, like Adam and Eve, who were given the priestly role of serving and guarding the garden in Genesis chapter 2. They are of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand as a, in attendance as a servant or a priest in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. It seems here that the youths are being described both as the forbidden fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and as the tree of life itself. So where am I getting this? Where is it going? It's very interesting. Hang with me here. They're skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning. This is quotations from Proverbs, which refers to wisdom as a tree of life in the garden, right? Making these youths sound like Solomon, like a, like a king, a priestly king. And also notice... When Eve saw the forbidden fruit that the serpent presented to her, she saw that it was good to look at, beneficial for gaining wisdom, and good for food. In the same way, Nebuchadnezzar chooses youths who are good to look at, beneficial for gaining wisdom, and fit to be swallowed up and indoctrinated into Babylonian culture. So here's my take on this. This is what I think is happening. 
To those living in rebellion against God, those who trust in their own wisdom for life, whose cultural ethic is, I'm going to make a name for myself. I get to decide what's wise, what's good, what isn't good for me. God's wisdom, which is a tree of life, is deadly to that person. It is the forbidden fruit. It's a threat to Nebuchadnezzar. And we'll see in chapter 4 that for Nebuchadnezzar, the result of taking this fruit is that he ends up naked and looking like a beast, right? Just like Adam and Eve, okay? Just like Ham with Noah, right? And the exalted will be humbled, and the humble will be exalted. But to those who trust in the Lord, his wisdom is a tree of life. It's life. It's food. It nourishes us. How do you know which tree you are eating from? It comes down to whose table you're eating at. And this is the test as it continues. The king offers to wine and dine the four youths, but Daniel refuses to eat the king's food. Why? What's this all about? Why does it get so much press in this passage? Well, one theory is that the Jews had their kosher food laws. There's unclean and clean foods, and so he's trying to uphold his, the Jewish law and not defile himself that way. But wine wasn't off limits. In fact, it was just fine in moderation. So that might not make much sense. Another theory is that maybe the food was offered to idols. Well, it doesn't say that. And in fact, in 1 Corinthians, Paul says that as long as you don't participate in an idol feast, eating food offered to idols is okay. I think the key is in the verbiage of what they choose to eat. In English, the translators use the word vegetables. But in Hebrew, the word is seeds. And there's also a place in Ezekiel where Ezekiel the prophet is told to eat seeds, like millet, barley, grains, and so on. But listen carefully to this passage in Genesis 1, 28-30. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. Now, and to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. So there's two kinds of food listed here. They're basically the same thing in some senses, but two kinds of food here. Seed-bearing plants for humans and green plants for the beasts. Daniel and friends refuse the king's food and choose only to eat seeds. While the king, on the other hand, when he loses his mind and is humbled in chapter 4, will eat grass like an ox and the Hebrew word there for grass is the same Hebrew word for green plant that is given to the beasts in Genesis. So for Daniel, Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael, the question is, 
What is being apocalypsed? What is being revealed? Is the human king exiling and swallowing up the seed of God's kingdom in order to conform them to his image and appearance? Or is God, the true king, reseeding his kingdom in the midst of Babylon through them? They choose to see that Babylon's garden isn't Nebuchadnezzar's garden. It's the Lord's garden. They will still serve and receive education from the earthly king, but they will choose not to be satiated by the food and wine of that king and his garden. Instead, they receive the food offered by the true king and his garden in Genesis. So in a sense, their refusal to eat is a refusal to covenant with the Babylonian king. And it's a choice to covenant with Yahweh in Babylon. It's a way of saying, I belong to you and you alone. You are my true king. The result favorably impacts their image. They get fatter than the other students, right? They look better than the other students who eat the king's food. So this is the apocalyptic truth. We bear the image of the one that we covenant with. There are rival kings offering you their food. And we will resemble the one at whose table we choose to sit. That's the message. Jesus Christ was the true seed of the kingdom of his father. And he left his heavenly home just like Daniel, and he planted himself in our chaotic Babylon, a kingdom defined by making a name for ourselves. Like Daniel and his friends, Jesus was the incarnate embodiment of the wisdom of God who set out to challenge the kingdoms of this world, not by demanding to be served, as the kings of this world do, but to serve, just like Daniel and his friends. Jesus would be tempted many times to take the food of the prince of this world, but instead he chose to receive the cup that his father had reserved for him, the cup representing God's wrath for our sin. He chose to receive our exile. He was stripped naked. He bore our shame on the cross, in our place, for us, so that we could be welcomed in to his new garden, to his kingdom. Now, because he humbled himself, he sits at the Father's right hand as the true king of this world, and he invites you to feast on his food. Today, there is an apocalypse. There is uncovering happening. Some marriages are getting stronger as they spend more time together. Some are falling apart. Some parents are tackling the homeschooling thing. My mom was saying she heard another such couple melting down. <laughs> I am not doing another day of homeschooling these kids. I've had it, I'm done, it's over. Some are on fixed incomes, they're keeping their jobs or they're able to work from home. 
Others are panicking because they don't know where they're going to feed their families in the next few months. Some are suffering from loneliness, depression, and isolation. Right now, alcohol sales have skyrocketed. Essential marijuana dispensary sales are at an all-time high. I'm positive pornography use is up. And online counseling services are maxed out as people try to figure out how to deal with the stress and the depression and the anxiety that comes from isolation. What is apocalypse? It is an external event that uncovers a new perspective on the reality that's underneath. So as your norms are overturned and upended, your coping strategies are removed. What are you finding? As you have to spend more time with your spouse and your family, what's happening? Are you drinking more? Are you running to binge on entertainment, drug abuse, porn? Are you depressed? Now here's the thing. All that stuff down here, it's not new. It's been there the whole time. Apocalypse just uncovers it and makes it known. These issues are not new. They didn't just happen to you because of COVID-19. What's underneath has been there all along. The only difference is revelation. What's being revealed. And what's being revealed is that we need a Savior. We can't depend on our work. We can't depend on the things we take for granted to give us the identity and the coping mechanisms we need for what's really going on underneath. Who sent Daniel and his friends to Babylon? Did Nebuchadnezzar exile the seeds of the kingdom to Babylon so that they could be consumed and bear the image of that king? Or did God plant the seeds of the kingdom in Babylon so that one day, Daniel 4, the king would know that it is Yahweh who sent them? In the same way, just before going to the cross, Jesus prays for his disciples, and he prays for you and me. And he says in John 17, he says, My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. He doesn't pray that we're taken out of Babylon. And he says, sanctify them, set them apart by the truth. And he says, your word is truth. Make them different. Make them different in appearance, set apart, because they feast on your truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. I pray also for those who believe in me through their message, that's you and me, that all of them may be one Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. Just like Daniel, Jesus is praying that you and I would be planted in this world so that the world would believe that God sent Jesus and by proxy that God sent you. But how would the world know that you've been sent by the king? Well, it depends on what you look like. It depends on whose image you bear. And whose image you bear depends on which king's food you've been eating. 
It may take a while, but eventually, this apocalyptic time that we're living in right now, it will pass. In some ways, things will return to normal, but in other ways, we cannot foresee how our culture is going to be impacted and changed because of this. And the question is, are you looking back? Are you seeing this as an end, as an exile, or are you looking to the future and seeing a new beginning? Are you willing to let God uncover what's underneath, deal with it according to his vision, his dreams, and plant you as a seed so that by you the world will know that he sent you? This time marks a change. Jesus said, your word is truth. He said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Will you feast on Jesus? Will you feast on his word? The king's seed, the real king's food, the word made flesh. Or will you feast upon Babylon's food to deal with this apocalypse? Will you binge on Netflix and Prime, medicate with drugs and alcohol, simply find more ways to distract yourself? I don't think there's anything wrong with a little bit of entertainment or, or wine or, you know, all these things that are meant to be good in moderation, but is this going to be the food of your king? If you eat the king's food you'll start to look like Babylon, that king's food, bearing the image of Netflix and whatever else you choose to absorb at that time. But if you feast on Jesus, on his body and his blood given for you, and on his word, you'll start to look like God. You'll start to bear his image. You'll be planted in Babylon, and the world will see you and know who sent you. Is he sending you right now? Is he wanting to plant you as a seed? Whose food are you eating? Take this opportunity to look forward. There's a lot of uncovering happening right now. The fields are ripe for the harvest. Listen. If you are finding yourself turning to Babylon's food, if you are drinking too much, if you are struggling and depressed, if your marriage is falling apart, if in some way or another this crisis is uncovering things that are just extremely painful to deal with and you don't know how to deal with them, please don't hide. Talk to somebody. Please. This week we put a link on our website Right under the menu that says COVID-19 and ACC, there's a link that says support. And if you need to submit a prayer request or just talk to someone, bring it out in the open, talk about these things, confess sin or just ask for prayer. If you go and there's just a short little form of a few things to fill out, and when you hit submit, it will automatically ping our elders and ministers here at ACC, and someone will get back to you. We want to be able to connect with you in a world that's disconnected right now. But don't hide as things are being uncovered and you're starting to see what's happening underneath. Don't just hide it. Talk about it. 
deal with it because the future is looking bright for you if you're willing to deal with it and choose the true king's food. You'll come into his garden. You'll be given dominion. You'll look like the king. That hope is there for you. Thanks again for joining us today. We want to remind you that we love you and God loves you and you always have a place here at ACC, even if it's virtually for now. Please don't hesitate to reach out to us if you need prayer or just need someone to talk to. We have a link on our website to a support page that will get sent directly to one of our elders or ministers. Please feel free to hit that up. Go in peace and have a wonderful week. We'll talk to you soon. Thank you.